increasingly depleted audience to keep moving forward, uh, <laughs> the survivors to keep moving forward. It just makes it an, a, a little more compact. Uh, anyhow, let me welcome you to the last session of our one-day LSE forum. The, this last session is entitled Moderating Society, International Relations, and Global Crisis. We've had two sessions so far, essentially focusing on issues of development. The first with a strong focus on development at a national level. The second with a stronger focus on what's happening at the international level. Uh, there was a reference, particularly in the second one, to one precondition. And that precondition was peace. It was not elaborated. And in some ways, our session today is really about that class of political issues. I now speak as somebody who has been involved in, for a long time in the UN and now remain involved in security issues. And quite frankly, the prospects for peace right now look worse than at any time in the past 15 years, if you were to look around the world. If you see what people call the greater Middle East, what we would of course call greater West Asia, you see that the uh, organized non-state militias, Taliban, the Hamas, the Hezbollah, the Mahdi army, are basically winning against the organized military power of some of the biggest, most powerful states in the world. I think the prospects for that particular part of the world to break out into a major conflagration have never been as high as they are now. And this is not the only threat to peace that we see. We have the nuclear confrontation with Iran and North Korea. We have smaller brush fires which are going on all around the world in our own neighborhood, uh, for that matter. So my first question to the panelists would be, how do they see the prospects for world peace in the years ahead? Because that was a precondition for much of what we talked about in the morning. What we also see, so we have talked a lot about globalization, <coughs> particularly in the second session, but we also see a certain backlash. We see the assertion of narrower identities, not just in the world of Islam, elsewhere also. How do we see this playing out? What is the sort of roadblock that this could pose in the development that were to some extent anticipated in the first two sessions. There are many other roadblocks that one can talk of, and I will not elaborate on this. I hope our panel will. But I do want to mention one thing which I personally consider a hopeful sign, and that is that over the past 15 years, we've also seen a greater spread of democracy 
and the idea of human freedom than we've had before that. If you see the number of countries which have gone democratic, which have had free elections, if you see the, what has been happening on human rights or the way in which human rights regimes are getting strengthened the worldwide, the way in which impunity is being questioned at the global level, particularly with the International Criminal Court and other such uh, measures, I would consider that to be a positive sign, but it has not happened everywhere. And that's the third question that I would pose to our panel. Uh, how do they see this playing out over the next few years? These are the questions that I thought I would pose to the panel before we start. Uh, we have a panel which is a little different from what is printed in your uh, brochure. Professor Fred Halliday is uh, unwell and cannot join us. Uh, he has been uh, replaced by Robert Wade, who kindly flew here from Moscow, uh, and I, he must thank us for rescuing him from the cold weather in Moscow. It's not much nicer here. Uh, Robert Wade is a professor in the Developmental Studies Department at the London School of Economics. He has uh, was, uh, taught at the Institute for Development Studies in Sussex. He has taught at Brown University. He's also worked in the World Bank. Uh, he's a friend of long standing, but I know him best as the most articulate and effective contrarian on issues of globalization. So we shall begin with an address by uh, Robert Wade. Well, thank you very much. Um, Nick Stern said last night in a wonderful speech that, quote, at LSE, we never dwell on agreement. And in that spirit, I want to jump straight in with two disagreements, or rather disagreements with two of the earlier speakers, the first one being Razim Saleh, and the second one being the Prime Minister of India. Razim, Razim's argument that more trade and FDI liberalization is always better is based on the assumption that trade liberalization, FDI liberalization are drivers, causes of subsequent economic growth. It is true that as countries, uh, as countries become richer, they liberalize their trade and FDI. But there is rather little evidence that trade liberalization itself and FDI liberalization itself are drivers of higher subsequent economic growth. It is what you could call the nice house problem. Rich people tend to live in nice houses. Unfortunately, it is not the case that if you live in a nice house, you will become rich. That is uh, one of my qualifications to Razim's 
argument. Now let me go to my qualifications with what the Prime Minister said. He said that the rise of Asia is not necessarily a threat to the West. And he referred to the way that the fast economic growth in India and China is generating complementary growth in the rest of the world. So it's not a, in any sense a zero-sum game. I want to make three qualifications to that happy argument. The first is that historically, at least as far back as the 16th century, the rise of, quote, peer competitors, peer competitor nations, to challenge the hegemonic power has almost always been attended by a lot of conflict. And I think you have to have quite a bias for hope in order to think that things this time, as China, India rise, will be different, that past historical dynamics will somehow be set aside. I think that the West and the United States in particular will find it very difficult, very troublesome to accommodate the rise of China as a peer competitor nation. The second qualification to what he said is that we are close already to re-embarking on a new Cold War especially between the West, led by the U.S. and the U.K., and Russia. This is in addition to the problems that Meghnad just referred to about the turbulence in the Middle East, the rise of non-state uh, militias. In addition to that, we are beginning to see the replaying of Cold War dynamics between the West and Russia with China waiting in the wings. Just for example, as you will know very recently, the UK cabinet has decided unanimously to commit 25 billion pounds to develop a replacement platform for the Trident nuclear weapon system. Well, insofar as this decision has anything whatsoever to do with the defense of the UK as distinct from the defense of the Labour Party against the Conservative Party in the next election, then the imagined threat is not what ministers are saying in semi-public, namely Iran and North Korea, the real threat that they imagine, they wish to imply is out there, is Russia and China. And the implicit argument that is being said in private is that we have to keep our nuclear deterrent, we have to even enlarge it, we have to spend 25 billion pounds on it instead of on all kinds of other things because we don't trust Russia and China not to attack us. So this is a, a very dangerous situation, I think. And the third qualification to what the Prime Minister said is that the rise of China 
as the world center of manufacturing is already knocking out manufacturing in many middle-income countries like Brazil and Mexico. And one of the great questions of our age, I think, is what is the scope for industrial development in developing countries in the age of China? I just referred to manufacturing, um, China becoming the world center of manufacturing. Well, there is a legitimate question. Is there anything special about manufacturing in the age of information technologies? Can we not use information technologies as the new driver, driving sector of development and not worry about manufacturing? Let me go off on a slight tangent which concerns LSE. The Prime Minister mentioned this morning Nicholas Caldor as one of the expatriates who worked in the Indian Planning Commission in the 1950s and 60s. Well, Caldor was a student at LSE in the late 1920s and the 30s, and his teacher was an American economist at LSE named Alan Young. And Alan Young was really the pioneer economic theorist of the theory of increasing returns as distinct from decreasing returns, which is the normal assumption in neoclassical economics. Alwyn Young was the first to show that in a world of increasing rather than decreasing returns, um, you can't have the kind of neoclassical equilibria and a whole lot of things go haywire in terms of the economic models. His work, Young's work, was later taken forward by people um, theorizing cumulative causation like Gunnar Myrdal and um, Albert Hirschman and Caldor himself. The, quest, the connection with manufacturing specifically is through three growth laws that Caldor formulated in the 1960s. One of them went like this. And it's important for this, especially for India, which many people in India think that services are going to be the driver of India's development. And this law of Caldor's questions that central proposition. The law says this, the rate of growth of productivity, of productivity in non-manufacturing, that's including services, and agriculture, is a function of the rate of growth of manufacturing output. Or, to put it the other way around, if country X, India or Brazil or Mexico, for example, does not have a high rate of growth of manufacturing output, then it is unlikely to have a high rate of growth of productivity in, for example, services and agriculture. That's the connection. Now, there is certainly quite a lot of empirical evidence in favor of that proposition, which suggests that services on their own cannot be the driver of development. They have to be complemented by a very dynamic manufacturing sector. There's quite a lot of evidence, but most of the evidence, to my knowledge, comes pre-IT revolution. And if any of you are 
looking to do a research degree at LSE, or you have children who are, I think a great subject would be to examine the empirical evidence in favor or against this growth law of Nicholas Caldor. Okay, let me talk to my larger perspective. My basic point is that the, what you could call the direction of travel in thinking about development policy for developing countries, in thinking about development policy in the West, in the organizations dominated by the West, such as the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD, the US government, the direction of travel of this thinking is not empirically well supported, is not empirically well supported. It is being promoted for quite other reasons other than its consistency with the empirical evidence. The direction of travel of policy has a twin track. The first track is, as Razim very eloquently expounded, market liberalization. Further liberalization, however liberalized markets are today, further liberalization is always desirable, is always a priority. That's track number one. Track number two is democratization for countries which are not already fully-fledged democracies. The argument is that insofar as developing countries further liberalize their markets for goods and services, perhaps capital, probably capital too, uh, but not necessarily labor, they will show improved economic performance. That's the key proposition. And secondly, developing countries which move further towards democracy will show improvements, improvements in the law and order situation and improvements in their economic growth. In other words, that on the one hand, market liberalization has no costs, no price, except for short-term adjustments to particular interests which are hurt, but they can be somehow taken care of with social safety nets. Market liberalization has no price. Also, democracy has no price because it brings good things. It brings improved law and order. It brings improved economic growth. And this argument says there will be spillovers from market liberalization and democracy into international relations because states experiencing improved market liberalization, improved economic growth, more democracy, such states will be more likely to cooperate with other states in solving existential crises like climate change and nuclear proliferation and the like international cooperation is more likely to go up when states are highly liberal in their markets and highly democratic in their politics. This line of thinking has been dominant for the past 25 years or so, and especially the economic part of it as distinct from the democracy part of it. Obviously, the World Bank can't get out there out in front and say, we want democracy in all developing countries. That's a bit too political for governments like China and Russia, 
to be very happy about. So the World Bank has to talk of governance rather than democracy. But the basic ideas are the same. Well, the question is, what is the evidence? And I'm going to just make a few, very few points about this question of evidence. Um, one of the participants in this gathering, a Canadian, Tyler Chalk, has flown all the way from Toronto to be here today. He sat through two, maybe three, one-and-a-half-hour lectures of mine while I went through the material, I'm going to spend maybe five minutes going over here. So my treatment is going to be extremely um, brief and schematic. This diagram shows world income distribution with population on the vertical axis and per capita income on the horizontal axis measured in purchasing power parity for a year in the late 1990s. And so basically you can see the two big humps, the two lots of, uh, or blobs of people, the great big one down here, and this little one up at the top, um, with this strange feature of the missing middle. Hardly anyone lives in countries with a per capita income in purchasing power parity terms of roughly between 5,000 and let's say 10,000 US dollars a year. This is a strange and I think quite unexplained feature of world dis income distribution. Well, think of this as a caravan, caravan moving forward. And the great question is, what is going to happen to this distribution over time? Is uh, this bottom, this great big bottom hump, including India and China, going to catch up? Is it going to move rapidly up on these top countries? Or are the top countries going to pull even further ahead than they are? What is going to happen in 50 years? Will we see a bell curve like this with China and India somewhere in the middle? Or will we see twin peaks or triple peaks. Danny Kwa, by the way, has written a seminal paper um, called, if I believe, The Twin Peaks of World Distribution or something of the kind. In any case, he coined the phrase, The Twin Peaks. He's one of the few people who've worked on exactly this issue of what are the big forces driving world income distribution. Well, the argument that I call the market liberal or liberal market or free market argument which has as I said dominated economic global economic policy for the past 25 years says two things one that the world has become more global and is becoming more and more global and two that this process of globalization or market integration or making the whole world function as one single economy, that process is driving a catch-up such that these countries on the whole are catching up with the already rich countries. And so, for example, Martin Wolf, one of the most influential economic journalists in the world for the Financial Times, who wrote a book 
recently, 2004, called Why Globalization Works, says quite clearly that world income distribution is becoming more equal thanks to globalization. And as long as we continue in the WTO, in the World Bank, in the IMF, in the OECD, as long as we continue to push liberalization as the key, then this process of catch-up will continue. First China, then India, then some of the lagging countries like Africa, but everybody will gain, everybody will be able to catch up over the period of the next century, provided we keep on this route of market liberalization. And one of the pieces of evidence that Martin Wolf, for one, appeals to is the Gini, the Gini coefficient of world income distribution, or more exactly, of the distribution of income between countries, taking each country's income at the average. So, this is the line of the world Gini distribution from 1950 to 2000. And you can see, lo and behold, round about 1980, which is just about the time when these new globalization dynamics really kick in and we begin, for example, to move towards free capital movements, lo and behold, this Gini coefficient reaches a peak right there and it begins to go down. And the falling Gini coefficient means that world income distribution is becoming more equal. And as I said, he says, this is due to continuing market liberalization. There's just, there are many problems actually with this, but you can see one of them already in the diagram. And the problem is that that result, the falling Gini, depends entirely on one giant country, namely China. And this is what happens if you exclude China. The curve keeps going up at least till 2000, suggesting wider income inequality, growing income inequality in the world rather than narrowing. And if you take out India as well, then this Gini coefficient increases even more. Now, I have nothing about, uh, I, I have no um, opposition to the Chinese or the Indians. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that if this result of falling inequality in the world as a whole depends entirely on one country, it is simply implausible to say that it is due to a general worldwide process called globalization. So this evidence, it seems to me, is that Martin Wolf, for one, adduces, um, is not actually very strong evidence. Let me refer to a, another measure of income distribution this is really a measure of income polarization, and it shows the ratio on this vertical dimension, the ratio of 
regional average income to that of the North, the OECD countries. And so, for example, and it goes from 1950 to 2001. And so, for example, take Latin America. You see the very sharp decline in the ratio of Latin America's per capita income to that of the North. By the way, this is in purchasing power parity terms, not foreign exchange terms, right down to something like 25%. The average income of Latin America has fallen to about 25%, that of the North, not the US, the North, including Greece, Portugal, and those poor Northern countries. Um, by 2001. If I had Eastern Europe on this chart, it would be very close to the Latin American fall. Eastern Europe, too, has fallen catastrophically since 1980. Um, Africa has simply continued, even accelerated, its fall during the great age of globalization after 1980. The exception, as you all know, is Asia, and actually this diagram, this is the Asia line here, and that excludes China. China is here put separately. I want to draw your attention to the fact that the Asia success stories, and they are success stories, and they do begin in the 1980s. That is true. So that is a score in favor of the globalization argument. But remember this, that the Asian countries are growing, that is, they are catching up on the north from a very low base, a very low base. We're down at around levels of 15% of that of the average of the north. So they have a great deal of room left in which to grow in order to uh, catch up with the North. And I think that those who project forward rates of growth in China, India, the rest of Southeast Asia of 9, 10, 11% uh, are simply ignoring um, a lot of history. It's very unlikely that countries can keep growing over decades at those kind of rates. Given turmoil in the rest of the world. And um, my, my next point is I can make in just one sentence by way of an answer to the question, to whom is economic growth accruing? That is, over the 1990s into the 2000s, we have had economic growth, meaning increased consumption on a world scale. Well, it turns out that over half, that is between 50 and 60% of the increase in world consumption over the 1990s and into the 2000s has accrued to just 10%, the top 10% of the world's income recipients. Of that 10%, four-fifths, 80%, live in the north and most of the rest of them, most of the rest of them, that is most of the 20% that remain, live in Latin America. 
the other main uh, country of residence of people who have benefited from economic growth in the 1990s is China, the middle class of China. So it's 50 to 60 percent of the increase in world consumption over the 1990s has gone to the top 10 percent. So this is the Matthews effect. Matthews, as in the Gospels, to him that hath shall be given, to him that hath not shall not be given. It seems to me that in the light of this and much other evidence, it's difficult to say that this process of market liberalization, making the world increasingly into one single economy except for labor, is improving world economic performance. That is to say, it's difficult to say that the world economy is becoming more inclusive in a general sense as distinct from an Asian sense. It's become more inclusive for some, but not for others. As indeed my friend and colleague Razim Saleh admitted. And then of course, in addition to all this, there's the historical evidence of the rise of Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan uh, as to how they did it. Did they, was market liberalization the key to their very fast catch-up growth? I've written a lot about this question in a book called Governing the Market. I just want to say something quickly about the second track, the twin track of dominant thinking, namely the democracy argument that all countries, all developing countries should democratize in order to improve law and order and in order to improve economic growth. This is separate from the argument that democracy is a value in and of itself. The argument, the empirical, sorry, the evidence, the empirical evidence suggests that this is not generally so. Rather, it suggests that there is a threshold effect, a threshold effect such that in countries which are below a certain threshold of law and order, further democratization is, actually makes the law and order situation worse and it makes economic growth worse. I think what is happening in Iraq right now is an example of that, but there's a lot of other evidence in the same kind. On the other hand, above this threshold of law and order, in states where there is a good law and order situation, such as, for example, Korea and Taiwan in, 19, in the mid-1980s, then democratization May, have, may well have these good effects in improving law and order and in improving economic growth. That's what I mean by there being a threshold. But it seems to me that um, this is a, an important caution in the idea that the foreign policy of the United States and Britain, for example, should give high priority to promoting democracy as such. Let me come to... Um, some points about what I think should be done going forward. One of the clear implications of what I'm arguing is that quite contrary to what Razim Saleh and many others argue, we should back off 
the proposition that the right direction of what we call reform is always freer markets. Rather, we should be aiming to design rules of engagement of national economies which give national governments more what you could call policy space, space for policy experimentation. And the reason for this is in particular the point that I've already made, which is that the evidence in favor of this always go for more market liberalization as the core of development strategy, that, uh, the evidence for that argument is simply not very sound. So international rules, like rules of the WTO, rules for World Bank lending, need to give a wider latitude for national governments to undertake policy experiments. This is not at all to say that we should go back to the kind of bad old import substituting regime that prevailed in India through much of the post-war decades or in Latin America or in my country, New Zealand, up until 1984. There are not just two alternatives, either that bad old import substituting regime with massive state controls, Soviet-style central planning and so on, or free markets of the kind that Razim Saleh has in mind. Those are not the alternatives. There are a range of strategies available, which I talk about, especially in the last chapter of my book, Governing the Market. So what I'm saying is that organizations like the World Bank, for example, for which I used to work, need to give more attention to how states, how governments can govern the market well as distinct from governing the market less. For example, protection. Protection is a powerful policy instrument. And like any powerful instrument, protection can be used well or it can be used badly. Often it has been used badly, but it has been used well. But the trouble with the World Bank is that it never talks about how to use protection well as distinct from how to use protection less. What I'm saying is, uh, has an implication for the WTO and the Doha round. As you can infer, I take a rather different view to Razim and many others. I think that the Uruguay round agreements, such as the TRIMS, the GATS, um, TRIPS especially, and other of the agreements, subsidies and countervailing measures, really do need to be revised so as to give developing country governments more policy space. And the question for India is what it can do to help lead this. Of course, it will be called a spoiler by people who presume that liberalization is the only way forward, but that's just tough. That's what you have to live with if you're one of the leading world economic powers. Um, and in terms of governance, we also have to back off the proposition, as I have said, that democracy, more de democratization is always better. It seems to me that countries that give foreign aid for governance have to give a higher priority to things like judicial reform, police reform, civil service reform, 
um, in order to improve the capacity of the state to enforce legal rules and reduce the scope for personalistic actions. Um, even though, in saying what I've just said, I realize that I run the risk of being branded someone who favors authoritarian governments. I do not. I regard democracy as a value, but I think the empirical evidence suggests that democracy in the form, for example, of elections um, should not be made a high priority for foreign policy help of Western governments to developing countries which are below a certain threshold of law and order. And of course, that raises the question of what is the threshold and if any of you or your children are looking for another research subject for a degree at LSE, that would be another great subject for you to take up. Finally, let me just say a few sentences about Russia. I've just come from Moscow, and these issues that I've been talking about are all too concrete. The Western media including the BBC, including the OECD in its recent report on Russia, is mounting a campaign of vilification of Russia and the Putin regime. Why? They, they accuse it of reasserting national economic sovereignty over nat natural resources. They accuse it of imposing restrictions on capital movements, on not allowing the financial system to be bought up by Western banks. They accuse it of restricting media ownership and content, and they accuse it of backtracking on democracy. Well, there are deep geopolitical reasons behind this campaign of vilification, and they relate back, I think, to the British Cabinet decision to go ahead with the Trident nuclear weapons system, but I won't now take up time to explain that link. But the point I want to make is that the justifications, the explicit justifications for this criticism of the Russian government for backtracking on market liberalization, for backtracking on democracy, they are based on these two twin tracks that have dominated economic policy in the West for 25 years, and which I have argued are seriously misleading. So, from my point of view, the, point, the Putin government is quite right to ensure that control of strategic natural resources and of its financial system and of its media do not pass into the hands of people whose view about the, how the economy and the polity should work are akin to those of Rupert Murdoch. The Russian government is quite right to insist that that does not happen. But in the end, and this is my final point, in the end, the basic fallacy of the current direction of travel in thinking about appropriate development strategy for developing countries, the basic fallacy in this direction of travel is the assumption that the institutions 
that have n are now present in the West, the institutions of the market, the institutions of democracy, are also the institutions that all developing countries should aim at in a straight line with the assumption that the more of those institutions they can bring into their territory, the faster they will catch up with the West. Alexander Gershenkron, the great Russian economist who taught at Harvard, was one of the first people to talk about the late development effect. What he meant by that was that the strategy of economic development, the kind of institutions that are needed for a country that is developing late in the presence of lots of other already developed countries has to be different from the kinds of strategies that those already developed countries used and the kind of strategies that they are using today. And so that the content of an appropriate development strategy for any one developing country um, may not consist simply of more liberal markets and more democracy. The country has to, do, uh, to, have, to have more room for experimentation allowed it by international rules. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad that uh, uh, Professor Wade lived up to my description of him as a contrarian. Mind you, it would have been great fun if we had Razin Sali and him on the same platform at the same time. We would have had some fireworks. But he hasn't, but they, he has partially responded to my question, but not fully, but doesn't matter. Our next speaker is His Excellency Ambassador Sun Yushi. He is an alumnus of uh, London School of Economics. Like, in fact, all of us on the platform have some connection with London School. Three of us have studied there. Two people have unfortunately not studied there, but they, have, they do fortunately teach there. And uh, he has, is now the ambassador of the People's Republic of China to India. He has served in Afghanistan, in Korea, in Cambodia, and I'm sure we all look forward to what he has to tell us on the whole issue of the way uh, he sees international relations evolving over the next few years. Ambassador. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure to be invited to the LSE Asia Forum today. My association with LSE can be traced back to 28 years ago. I was there from 1978 to 79 when I, studied, I did international relations there. I'm still proud of that because the LSE is renowned across the world for producing very good economic and political thinking. Today, I would like to share with you my observations on two points. First, China's concept of a harmonious world, how to build a harmonious world. 
And then second, a little about China-Indian relations. The concept of building a harmonious world was first advocated by Mr. Hu Jintao, the Chinese president, in his speech delivered in the UN General Assembly in 2005. But the pursuit of harmony is deeply rooted in the Chinese traditions. Engraved on the walls of the UN, uh, UN's New York headquarters is the teaching of Confucius. Uh, he said, Do not do unto others what you would not want done unto you. This concept, we think, is uh, out of this idea of keep things in harmony is a key, key theme of the Confucius thought. It is also regarded as the golden rule guiding state-to-state -state relations, as we see it. Today, China is working hard to build a harmonious society domestically. A harmonious society features, we think, democracy and the rule of law, fairness and social justice, credibility, vitality, stability, and harmony between nature and humanity. While we are building a harmonious society domestically, China is also trying to build a harmonious world. This is coming out of our understanding of the current international situation and its trend in the future. Our concept of a harmonious world is mainly compliant with the three parts. First, harmony among nations. Harmony remains the inevitable trend of the world history. Despite of ceaseless wars and conflicts over the past 100 years, the world has not been destroyed, but kept on developing. The end of the Cold War has brought profound changes to the world. Multipolarization and economic globalization are developing in greater depth. Peace, development, and cooperation are the calling of times. The prevailing desire of the international community today is for peace and development. No world war is in the foreseeable future. All of these, we think, lay solid foundation for moving towards a harmonious world. Every country has its own national interests. One may ask, how can we deal with a different with the difference of national interests when you are talking about harmony. I believe the mutual interest of uh, different nations may fall into three categories. First, common interests. Second, different but not conflicting in interests. Third, conflicting interests. In today's world, Common interests among different countries are increasing. 
more and more countries understand better about the relations between promoting common interests with their countries and safeguarding its own national interests. Common interests can be realized through coordination and cooperation. While conflicting interests still exist among nations, and we must try to contain and reduce these conflicts. For those different but not conflicting interests, we can seek common grounds while sheltering the differences. In today's world, a nation's security is closely related with regional and global security. Only through international cooperation can we effectively address these common security problems. The Cold War mentality, unilateralism, and the worship of military might will lead us nowhere. We in China are calling for a new security concept featuring mutual trust, mutual benefit, equality, and cooperation. We believe in five principles for peaceful coexistence. We support security dialogue, regional security cooperation mechanisms, and stronger multilateral security cooperation. We support stronger multilateralism, greater democracy, and the rule of law in international relations. We are pleased to see that more and more countries are turning to multi-field, multi-level, and multi-channel international cooperation. Developments bear on the actual interests of people of all countries. It is the key to removing the root cause of global security threats. No development progress can be made without peace, and no genuine peace can be realized without development. Common development is the promise and the foundation for the international community to seek a solution to global issues. We believe that all countries should aim to achieve mutual benefit and win-win results in their pursuit of development. We should help the developing countries to participate in international economic affairs on an equal footing. We should establish an open and fair trading regime and improve the international financial system. We should settle trade friction through dialogue. It's no good to lash out on unilateral sanctions or retaliations. Second, harmony of humanity. The key words for harmony of humanity are openness and tolerance. All civilizations in the world should respect, tolerate, and learn from each other. We need to strengthen communications, dialogue, and cooperation among different civilizations. The world's diverse civilizations are the shared heritage of humanity. Only diversity 
can make this world colorful. Culture is the best bridge to get souls connected. We must encourage tolerance and respect among people of different cultures. We believe that all countries are entitled to choose political systems and development strategies in light of their national conditions. All countries should draw upon each other's strength in the inter-civilization dialogue. In this way, they can divide themselves while making contributions to the progress of the in-kind of entire mankind. Third, harmony between humanity and nature. The harmonious coexistence between humanity and nature is the precondition for the development of civilizations. A Chinese saying goes, heaven and man are an integral one. We are in constant pursuit of harmony between humanity and nature. The, su- the survival of humanity depends on resources and environment. We have only one common home, which is this globe. It is the common interest of humanity to take care of and do good to nature. We should enhance cooperative capabilities to improve human health and the environment and address the issues of climate change and respond to natural disasters. Apart from the glorious development of civilizations, the 20th century also witnessed the human slaughter, large-scale destruction of the environment, as well as mass famine, poverty, and diseases. In the 21st century, human beings are facing unprecedented opportunities and unparalleled challenges. To build a better future is the long-cherished dream of mankind. Any development strategy should be guided by a long-term perspective instead of immediate and sectoral benefits. Only through peace and prosperity among states, good neighborliness among individuals, and harmony between humanity and nature could our civilization keep going forward. History has witnessed the rapid development of China since the reform and opening up policy implemented in China. A peaceful and favorable international and regional environment has given China great support for its development. And China's development will in turn contribute to a world of lasting peace and common prosperity. Now we want to further strengthen and deepen the harmonious development of both China and the world. I believe this concept of building a harmonious society, a harmonious international society, can become an important inspiration of our time. Now let me take a few minutes to talk about China-India relations. 
Chinese President Hu Jintao just visit, finished a very successful visit to India. It is another milestone in our bilateral relations. China and India are two large Asian nations and two of the fastest growing emerging economies of the world. The cooperation between us transcends the bilateral level and has global significance. China and India pose no threat to each other. We are friends and partners rather than rivals and competitors. Just as the Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh said, there is enough space for China and India to develop together in a mutually supportive manner. Actually, we share important responsibilities for peace and security in Asia as well as in the world. We can promote regional peace and prosperity and create a better international environment that will facilitate our development endeavor. Jointly developing the long-term partnership between China and India will not only benefit two-fifths of the world population, but also contribute to peace, stability, and development in Asia and the world. So a win-win result for Sino-Indian relationship will accordingly mean success for the region and the world. I believe that when China and India could move ahead hand in hand and shoulder to shoulder, we will pave the way for a harmonious neighborhood if we can jointly extend this mode of cooperation to the whole region, we will be doing our part for harmonious Asia. And if more countries can join our efforts, we will be on the way of building a harmonious world. And this will make the dreams of our two great Oriental civilizations come true. Now I have finished the reading of my written speech, but uh, now I would like to add one other point. Just now, Professor Robert Wei talked about the rise of uh, China and India. That reminds me, about three years ago, I think, I, I used the same term in our internal discussion in the foreign ministry. But I remember that the foreign minister immediately correct me, uh, say, you are an ambassador of China. Don't talk the rise of China, because it's a wrong concept for you. I, say, I ask why. Say, he said, if you say rise of China, it might indicate someone others might fall. Who is going to fall? And we don't want anyone to fall. And when we you the better used word development. Full of my speech, I use development. And when China, they say, when China develops, you also think you should develop together with all your neighbors and all your poor brothers in Africa, in Latin America. And this, I think this year, that is why China takes so much effort to organize 
a big meeting of all the African heads of states in Beijing. And we do want to develop with the whole of the world to build a harmonious world. Thank you very much. Uh, we now turn to our third uh, speaker, the respondent, uh, Purna Sen. She is uh, the director of the Asia-Pacific program in Amnesty International. I remember when I was a student in LSE, uh, Amnesty had just started at about that time. And it's wonderful to see that organization developing into this hugely influential uh, NGO. She has worked in LSE in the Development Studies Institute and is essentially been a specialist in many issues relating to women's rights, violence against women, trafficking in women, and so on. So may I now invite Purna. Thank you, Nitin. Um, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm quite aware that I'm speaking as the only NGO representative today. And I wonder if some of you have a question in your mind if I'm here to speak against globalization at a day when we're considering challenges to globalization. Well, I don't know if it will surprise you or not, but I'm not here representing an organization that is against globalization at all. In fact, Amnesty has always called itself an organization which is pro-globalization. It's, it's in favor of globalization and the removal of national borders, the deconstruction and dismantling of national protection against international gaze in terms of justice and human rights. Whatever the defenses might be against that international gaze, whether it's accusing that gaze of being Western or of a sense of doing it better at home, I assume that that sort of defense will not hold in this room. We sit here at an LSE event and we take as our frame of reference today globalization. Justice and human rights, I've already mentioned, promoting them means having an eye to the processes of and processes that happen alongside globalization that bring disparate sharing of benefits across different segments of the population. Danny Kwa talked earlier about the potential of economic growth to take people out of poverty. Indeed, that potential is of course there and will hopefully continue to be taken further. But we also need to be aware of the challenges of globalization, including economic globalization, to carry through, the the, to carry through an equitable pattern of distribution of the gains of economic progress, of the possibilities of economic development. I want to speak about the responsibility of the, and on the potential of globalization in terms of social justice and the promotion of human rights. In fact, at Amnesty, we say we are pro-globalization. Our struggle is for the globalization of justice. We've heard a lot today about India's pride, and that of China too, more recently, in its recent economic record. We've heard about um, 
growth in, in particular industries and in companies and so on. Um, but Danny reminded us of the need to disaggregate that picture and remember that um, phenomenal numbers still remain in poverty. He reminded us of those living beneath the $2 a day income threshold and those below the $1 a day threshold. I want to add to that dimension and say let's continue to disaggregate further and we see a different story. A story that's perhaps relevant to both India and China is that of rural-urban disparities. In India, we know that over the last six years, there have been over 10,000 farmer suicides. We, we hear reports of a 4 to 1 ratio of urban to, to rural income in China. The benefits of economic development, the linkages with international development remain to be fully or fairly felt by rural populations and agricultural communities. One challenge of globalization is to deliver those benefits to all. We haven't talked much about the position of women. India has a poor history of female labor force participation or female literacy rates. Those still need to be addressed. And other groups, too, tell us about their, their alienation and their distance from the fruits of economic globalization and development. At Amnesty, we're currently monitoring and looking into the position of those who are in some way touched by mining developments in different parts of the country. You'll be aware of them. Various states across uh, East India are touched. We're particularly looking at what's happening in Orissa at the moment. And those mining developments are having an impact on local, often indigenous people. Let me clarify here. Amnesty is not taking a position against mining or against mining developments. But we do have concerns about the impacts of the processes of those developments and things that are being undertaken that leave so many people with little sense of participation in change of influence over their lives or a sense of their own benefit from development. I think this is a very worrying sense of disengagement from the state. What we see happening is that those people who feel displaced, alienated or bypassed by these processes are, are, are finding themselves removed from that, that, those developments and from the benefits and are opting out of engagement with the state, with state processes. We know of whole groups of villages that have barricaded themselves off from the state, from the police, and people are only allowed in with their permission. This is not necessarily a healthy development. The alienation of significant numbers of people from economic development and from the fruits, the potential fruits of globalization, not only fuels an anti-globalization lobby, but it strengthens their, sorry, their, their propulsion away from democratic political processes. This is, of course, dangerous. Is this really a path that India wants to see develop further? Inequities and inequalities, real or perceived on a significant scale, will only undermine the potential of globalization to deliver any form of justice. 
Secondly, I want to turn to the fact that we often talk about globalization as only an economic process. Of course, it, of course it isn't that. It's also social, political, and cultural. I have, of course, mentioned uh, the spread of human rights values, and we see that as an essential element of globalization and a positive angle to globalization. We see that, that spread of international values and standards of human rights as part of the inherent logic of globalization. And we've seen in recent years how the language and infrastructure of human rights is increasingly taken up by many states, including those in Asia. 2006 has seen several Asian countries successfully become elected to the new Human Rights Council all of them made impressive sets of commitments on human rights as part of their campaigns for election. Others have made commitments to or used the language of human rights increasingly in their interstate dialogues. Clearly, these states see an inherent benefit and a value in international engagement and wish to be involved in the human rights discourse and development that goes on around them but these commitments cannot remain at a rhetorical level only. As I said, India and all the others who became members of the Human Rights Council made a range of promises to support human rights mechanisms, to ratify treaties that they have not uh, acceded to so far, to cooperate with special procedures of the United Nations, and so on and so on but India has some considerable way to go towards meeting these commitments. It has shown little serious intention to ratify the, international, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Nitin made mention of that earlier. We were told earlier this year by the government that they would be taking serious steps towards that by the end of 2006. In our dialogue with them this week, we've been told there's absolutely no chance of that happening. Um, and, and a request from the Special Rapporteur on Torture to visit India is outstanding from 1993. It is ironic that while in, India has indeed opened up to economic and financial cooperation internationally, it appears to be considerably more reticent to open up borders in the human rights field, including, I regretfully note, in terms of cooperating with international initiatives to explore human rights concerns and situations, both with intergovernmental inter organizations and non-governmental organizations. In many parts of Asia, Amnesty has excellent relations with governments and access to their countries. We have very positive, constructive, and often very critical dialogues with states. Amongst them, we include Sri Lanka, who, with whom we've been very, very robust in our criticisms of recent history and events this year. Nepal, with whom we have been very open about the need for change earlier this year um, and, and the year before we were able also to visit the king just as he announced the state of emergency. We were robust again there in our critique. We have access to Pakistan. We have good relations in Bangladesh, in Afghanistan, Thailand, Japan, and so on. You'll note that I didn't mention India in this list, nor did I mention China. 
It is a regrettable scenario for a state and a people in India, rightly proud of being an open and mature democracy and having a thriving civil society. Surely a mature and open democratic state is cognizant of the need to engage in constructive dialogue with those from inside or outside its borders. It is one inescapable characteristic of globalization and engagement and an openness to international dialogue, critique and progress. Closure to the outside world continues an isolationist position. India seems to be unsure where it sits in terms of that isolation and that engagement. Finally, I want to address one theme of this last session, which is that of international relations. As I said, there is increasing engagement with the human rights frameworks and discussions. Surely this brings an obligation to promote human rights, not just to respect them, domestically as well as internationally, beyond national borders. India has this year been widely recognized as having played a very positive role in the very positive developments in Nepal earlier this year. It, India sees itself and is seen by many others as a regional power and has taken a more global formal role on human rights through the U United Nations. And as we all know, India has aspirations to Security Council membership. Such uh, positionings bring obligations to promote the internationally accepted values of justice, yet India is noticeable for its sometimes silence, its sometimes rather inaudible voice on major situations of human rights or other crises. A neighboring country, Sri Lanka, has had a very deteriorating situation this year in terms of conflict with over 200,000 people displaced 10,000 people coming to India. Um, many people killed. We're now hearing the first reports of death from starvation in the north of the country. There's obviously been a dialogue between Sri Lanka and India about this, but no public, an inadequate public statement from India about what must be done to move forward about human rights uh, violations and about issues of impunity. India is, a, is an economic partner with Myanmar, a country where the regime has um, very poor legitimacy and recognition in the world, but we don't hear enough from India about the need for change there, the difficulties of that regime, and the terrible situation of the people in that country. Of course, quiet diplomacy, which India promotes, has a role but the leadership, the international leadership to which India aspires, surely requires more. In sum, globalization is too often seen as a wholly good or wholly bad phenomenon and too often reduced to economic globalization. The first two characterizations are unfair either way, but a broader and more nuanced view must take in the links between economic globalization and progress towards justice and equality while eschewing and if avoiding, or correcting if necessary, adverse consequences and associations. At the same time, globalization cannot be reduced to trade or trading or financial opening. Social and political imperatives and realities must move towards enabling globalized justice. National borders 
against these dynamics must be dismantled. Globalization and, and protectionism sit poorly together. Surely this proud, mature, democratic nation has the confidence and courage to speak out for such values. The courage to take on challenges of globalization and to promote them at home and beyond. If India wishes to be a leader in a globalizing world, it must surely rise to this challenge. Thank you. We have heard from our panel, Dr. Meghna Desai is also there, but he'll speak at the end. And uh, more to wrap up the whole day's proceedings. So let's open the floor for questions. You had, you, you had, if you like, the opposition speaking in this last session, at least on issues of globalization and democracy. Uh, my pessimism has not been echoed by anybody, and the ambassador has actually a very optimistic vision of a harmonious world. Now, both sets of questions are open for discussion, for comment. We have, I'd say, about 10 minutes. Who wants to start off? Or are you all terribly exhausted? Ah, there you are. There's one there. Before we face the Midnight problem, two there. Three there. I think we can take at least four. Well, let's start with the three. The gentleman there. Can we, Ogilvy Mathur, can we have this? Uh, the agenda for oh, I'm Ritoban Roy. I work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, but my views do not reflect that of the organisation. Uh, the agenda reads that session three is about moderating society. So my question is uh, to His Excellency the Ambassador. Uh, very eloquent exposition about that harmony theory of yours. How does that square with say? For example, the systematic brutalization of Tibetan culture and the repeated attempts to malign the Dalai Lama. I come from Pakistan and <clears throat> in today's meeting, no I said anything about Pakistan, but I want to make a comment. Uh, with reference to Pakistan, if people have been talking, the professors, about the globalization and the democracy. Uh, we in Pakistan are in a dilemma. And I want some of you to answer or guide us. See, global, globalization to me means something of everyone, not one, uh, not everything of someone. Here we are faced that global transition is only to serve, to serve the development of controlling people. The number though, number two, our dilemma is that, that the promoters 
that the peddlers of a democracy have closed their eye towards Pakistan. But they are worried about democracy in China and freedom of speech and liberties, and they are worried about, I mean, democracy and freedom and liberties in Iran, but they have turned their back towards Pakistan. And they say that they have not thought of a Pakistan without a general at the helms of the fair. Now, how can we talk of, global, of globalization and development and democracy where the people, I would have thought that after the Cold War was over, the things returned to better. And we regret today the people who took credit of the fall of Soviet Union. It has turned the Cold War into physical war. And we are suffering more. And we hope a new superpower in shape of China or someone else emerges to, that, to balance the balance of power once again. I want an answer from you the, from the promoters, the providence of the, of the democracy and development. What are your designs about Pakistan and the region around? We had one gentleman from there. Hello, my name is John Colvin from Freehills in Sydney. Uh, the views that I uh, put forward or the question I have uh, have nothing to do with Sydney or my organisation. Um, but I did get excited when I heard about spoilers. I thought Shane Warne uh, had developed a new and exciting flipper. Um, that wasn't to be, it was something more political. Um, the question I have is for Professor Robert Wade and I was intrigued with his building blocks for democracy and uh, how perhaps countries should look at this before they uh, lend money or the IMF or what have you. I had a number of difficulties with that concept and that is, um, one, um, how do you know when they've got there? Two, what happens when they get there and they go backwards? Three, everybody said the rule of law is paramount, but how do you establish a rule of law without having some fundamental um, institutions in place which have separations of power in a situation which is probably antithetical to a rule of law when you don't have that. So the concept sounded good and uh, building blocks for democracy, education, etc., etc., all sounded good, but uh, the concept, I think, even 40,000 PhDs are going to have difficulty with. Okay, we can take one, one more before we turn to the... And we have the mic there to the lady. Yes. I'm Pragya Parmita and I'm the former student of the LSE. And uh, I would like to ask the Chinese ambassador 
he's talking about harmonization and learning from others and cooperation. Would you like to comment on India's approach of building up special economic zones such as China's? Thank you. May I turn to the ambassador first, please? Hmm? Thank you. First of all, uh, the first question about that. I think uh, uh, obviously we have different views on uh, the present situation of Tibet. I wonder if you have vis ever visited Tibet. I recent years have been there a number of times. I saw the Tibetan culture has maintained, not perfect, but very nicely. A new university is being set up, and the Tibetan language is preserved and is developing, and uh, uh, the religion of Buddhism is practiced widely in that. And I think there are so political stability and uh, economic prosperity and people are living in a better life. I, do, I don't know where you get the idea of Tibetan culture being uh, destroyed or something violated, and that's for, about the Tibetan culture. I think uh, I, if you haven't been to Tibet, now you have an invitation from me, I will try to invite you to Tibet to see for yourself how the Tibetan culture is being preserved. And the second about Dalai Lama. I think Dalai Lama, uh, people take, many people take it as a religious leader. He's respected that way. But in our view, he is only taking the religion, he used to be a religious leader, but now he is only taking religion as a cover for political activity. For example, why a religious leader need to lead the government in exile? So his, in that, his effort is to try to split China. He has his, his own political motive. And uh, uh, even uh, when, before he fled out of China, he instigated and led uh, armed uprising in Tibet. And uh, then he also his, this year, wherever he go, he talked about, uh, uh, so used to talk about the independence of Tibet. Now he's to a high level of autonomy, which we see as a tactical step for independence. So, but anyhow, uh, we still, uh, uh, the, the, the door for him to come back, is keep, we keep open that, if he give up his desi uh, political design for splitting China, he's welcome back to China and to become not only a religious leader, but also a national leader, he used, as he used to be. Uh, and, uh, Second question about the uh, uh, economic, uh, special economic zone. I think we got very successful in that. Uh, I know that uh, in recent, over the past two or three years, there are many Indian delegations go to China 
to do research on the development of the uh, on this aspects of uh, special economic zone, and uh, we think uh, it's a success in our pace of development. But I do, we are not sure whether it suits India. But the, if India chooses to do it, we are ready to help. And uh, if we are even thinking uh, if uh, the Indian government allow, if your policy allow, we can come here and develop a Chinese model of, we can have a special economic zone in India. Thank you very much. Thank you. We should take the speech. Robert, would you like to come? You had a question from the Australian gentleman. Yes. Um, so let me address the um, gentleman from the city in which I was born, namely Sydney. Um, you question the argument that I made about the priority in terms of development for uh, law and order achieving a state where a condition in which the state is able to maintain a certain minimum threshold of law and order before proceeding to an electoral system where representatives uh, make the main elected representatives make the main decisions and control the main officials that's what you questioned I think well I would just draw your attention to cases such as South Korea and Taiwan up to the late 1980s they were certainly not democracies they did not meet that condition they did have very fast economic growth in a situation with a rather high level of law and order partly because they were very authoritarian regimes but there were dramatic improvements in living standards and on the basis of that they were able to then transition to a reasonably robust form of democracy and I would say that even in the case of Japan Japan has for most of the post-war decades not been a normal democracy in the sense that people have gone to the polls to elect representatives knowing there was virtually no chance that there could be a change in the governing party um, Japan has been a very peculiar uh, kind of democracy by Western standards similarly Brazil is another case in point which had very fast growth through the 1950s and the 1960s as a military regime and when it transitioned to democracy of course other things were going on it slowed its growth slowed down substantially um, so the point is there are certainly cases which are consistent with the line of argument that I've made in perhaps you could say that one of the big exceptions to the line of argument I've made is India but that's then an interesting question for discussion whether it is an exception or not whether the Indian democracy uh, has functioned well even below this threshold effect that I've talked about or whether it has functioned the democracy has functioned well because India has actually been through the post-war decades above 
this threshold of law and order? That's an interesting research question. That's a third interesting question. Anybody looking for a research topic to do at LSE <laughs> might want to take up. Orna? Um, I was only going to comment on the... Is that working? I don't know. It's on. Um, the question on democracy in Pakistan. I'm not quite sure what the, the question was specifically, but I think what I want to say to you is that um, our interest from Amnesty International would be to see that people in Pakistan, as in India, the Maldives, Bangladesh, and any other country, would be able to exercise their rights that inhere in them as, as individuals to... Uh, express themselves politically peacefully, to engage in political life without threat, not to be subject to the sorts of disappearances that people in Pakistan are suffering now, or to be uh, taken by their state and subjected to rendition, not to be subjected to the um, constraints that are allowed to be imposed in the name of uh, religious extremism or fundamentalism. So those are the sorts of angles from which we would approach that question. Thank you. Well, we come to the end of our uh, session. I, it's been very interesting. It's been a bit all over the place, I suppose, which is unavoidable. But uh, maybe the, our discussion has been on how we are driving the car, whether we are driving it in the right gear, whether we should sh change gear or not. My concern was that the road ahead of us may be collapsing. But maybe that requires another forum. So on that note, I shall hand it over to Dr. Meghnandes. Thank you. Thank you, Nitin. Uh, we have two deciles on the panel, just to make sure you are all awake and don't get confused. Um, some time ago when Nick Stern came to LSE and gave his lecture on uh, his climate change report, towards the end, some, uh, it is an old theater, and those of you who have been at LSE would know the scenario. Someone in the above uh, level stood up at the end and denounced him, standing up for not having answered his questions, you've ignored me and all that, and everybody was looking around confused, and Nick said, ah, an LSE moment. <laughs> and I think that is, that is what LSE is all about, as he himself said. LSE is not about agreement, it's about argument. And you will have noticed that there is no single LSE line on globalization, on democracy, on equality, on, on public-private partnership, on anything, because LSE is not and has never been about consensus, about soothsaying, about making you feel good and happy with yourself. LSE is about making you agitated, worried, and to think for yourself. And what today has shown, starting from, uh, from the morning, is that a variety of uh, questions open before us today as citizens of the world. And these questions need to be addressed, starting with the Prime Minister, and I think he, he I'm very grateful to him for having come. And he just did not make a 
sort of standard tribute to I.G. Patel. But in the true spirit of I.G. Patel, he raised some interesting questions. And to me, one of the most interesting questions was, will the rise of Asia make the world change its way, mend its way towards Asia? Because in the past, the West has treated Asia asymmetrically. And I think this sort of theme is bubbling through. Whether when you set up rules of international trade, <clears throat> will every region play by those rules or not? I mean, is it possible that we talk about liberal trade or freer trade, and then some countries take a view on agricultural subsidies, which are completely contrary to the rules they have set up, and then they sabotage WTO. That's a question we have to face up. Will the prosperity of Asia, will the rise of China, a very undiplomatic word as, as the as ambassador told us, will the rise of China and India disturb this delicate equilibrium which the world has been maintaining or thinks it has been maintaining all these years, and will global peace be, be threatened by that. Uh, someone, someone was saying uh, to me the other day, you know, it's terrible. The American policy in the Middle East has created a lot of instability. And I said, you mean there was stability before, before the Americans got to the Middle East? Tell me about it. Uh, so my, my answer is the same thing. What we have to learn, what the world has to learn, what the West has to learn, uh, is the world is changing. And if the world is going to be globalizing, the globalized world is not going to be run by the same old rules as before. Or it is going to be run by the same old rules, it's only going to be run by the same old rules if everybody accepts those old rules voluntarily. And I think again and again we have questioned the old models, for example, of Total public sector domination of the infrastructure was denounced by Tarun Das, and that was very much the old model of socialism, old labor, if I may use, use a British term. Now, India grew up on old labor, on, on Lasky and, and, uh, and issues like that. But LSE is not just Lasky. LSE is Hayek as well. So remember that LSE has no single line on either pro-liberalization or anti-liberalization. What it says is, think for yourself, do what you can, but at the same time, another theme which came through all day today, and came through on Sheila Dixit's uh, uh, speech, and again, throughout, is that there is a central issue of equity. It's not just about economics. It's London School of Economics and Political Science and of course also sociology and law and various other things. So issues of economics, issues of politics, issues of power, issues of technology are also issues of equity, of human rights, of our concern for the poorest people in the world. And again, we, we, we sort of contradict, contradict each other passionately. We quarrel about things. Because one thing which is common, a common purpose, and which is sort of almost the mission of the LSE, is that whatever theories we espouse, whatever arguments we put forward, whatever data we put before you, 
At the end of the day, we're doing it because we're all concerned about the betterment of the worst of people in the world. And that, I think, is a message with which I want to end the day. It has been, I hope, a thoughtful and stimulating day for all of you. All the speakers have been very, very good in giving their time and their, and their thought to their presentations here. And you have all been a very good audience in asking some searching questions. If you haven't got answers to all your searching questions, I will give you the final answer. Go search for yourself. Thank you. Now I we hand over to the director. Stop. We can come. We Well, thank you, Nizin, and um, I'm going to be extremely brief because uh, Megnad has done my job for me, uh, really. Um, Megnad is actually, I have to tell you, my favorite LSE professor, and for two reasons. One, because he's a terrifically bonhomous character who will always do what you ask, and secondly, because of that crucial word, emeritus, in front of the word, in front of his title. Because emeritus to a director responsible for the finances of the organization means unpaid. And that's absolutely the best sort of professor uh, that there is. Uh, I just wanted to add my thanks to you all uh, for turning up. Uh, but also, um, I think I would like to thank the people who have done all that they have for us supporting today the partners and the sponsors without whom we couldn't have put this on, uh, but also the LSE organizing team. It's not easy to organize a conference of this kind uh, from 5,000 miles away, um, but uh, they've done so. Everything's run so far uh, pretty smoothly, and I'm very grateful to my team for doing that, which is very much over and above their normal lives. As Megnad said, there is no way of summing up this conference. I'm not attempting to do so. I was reminded at various points during the day of Amartya Sen's latest book. I think it was The Argumentative Indian. Um, we've shown there are argumentative non-Indian academics too. Uh, the fact that most of them are at the LSE is the cross I have to bear. Uh, but um, it was, I think, I hope, it was a stimulating day which took many of you back to your school days, um, and if it did so, then we've fulfilled our uh, objective. Um, the key point is, though, that this is not an end point. It was a conference, it was a day, but it was more than a day in the sense that I think it signaled a renewal of the LSE's engagement with India. We announced the chair this morning, the India Observatory, uh, and at tonight's dinner we'll say something more about new scholarships, which we've managed to secure uh, on the back of this uh, event and our own commitment to India. So this is the beginning rather than an end. We hope that our engagement with India, which already dates back 100 years, will be renewed and deepened in the next 
100 years, and if that happens, uh, all of the effort will have been worthwhile. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.